Let's pray. Our Lord and, and our God, there is, there is nothing more important for us to understand in this life than that of the gospel. And so we pray that by your spirit in the next few moments that you will give us an understanding and help us to embrace the gospel truth to the saving of our souls. Lord, to your glory as well. We thank you and we pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, one of the things that you're going to notice, and kids, you're especially probably going to notice this, as we continue to talk about the five solas, the five onlys, scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, glory to God alone, that as we continue to talk about these five solas, that you can't talk about one without talking about the other ones as well. Because really, as, as the reformers were looking at scripture, they realized that all of these had to do with the, the topic of justification. Now that's a big word, justification, but basically it talks about how we as sinful people are made right with God. And that's what Paul addresses in Romans chapter three. So if you'll, you'll turn there once again, let me just read verses 21 and 22 where he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been evident, has become obvious apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so Paul goes on to explain why that righteousness is necessary in verse 23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of of God, But God justifies us, he goes on to say, by grace as a gift. In other words, God makes us right with himself through the gift of his grace, which we're going to talk about next week. But, you know, as wonderful as the salvation that has been accomplished by Jesus Christ may be, it is of no use to us unless it becomes ours personally. And we read throughout Romans 3, 21 through 31, that this is made possible through faith. Look, look with your scriptures again, if you would, with me. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then verse 30, um, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith as well. So it's no wonder that the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, and without faith it is impossible to please him, that is to please God. 
So God provides a righteousness of his own for his people, a righteousness that, that we don't possess. And this righteousness that comes from God has been provided for us simply through faith. But what, what, what is faith? And what does that saving faith look like as we put our trust in Christ? Well, I want to talk about that just a little bit this morning. I just, sometimes we hear things talked about in the church and we just assume we know what they mean. And even if we do know what they mean, it's just a good reminder for us to, to see what God has given us as his children. And R.C. Sproul has written a little book entitled What is Faith? And it's, it's a really, it's a good book. If you can get your hands on it, I would encourage you to do so. But he sort of talks about what faith is. And he makes the point that the most foundational definition of faith, and I think we probably already know this, is found in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you want to turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, we see that faith is defined this way. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. So you see here that the, the writer of Hebrews uh, really makes a, a distinction between faith and hope. But they are ideas that are connected to one another, but they are distinct as well. And before I sort of tie in how those two sort of fit together, I think we really need to understand how the Bible uses that word hope. Because, you know, when we refer to hope, we use it sort of a different way than what the Bible says. You know, we usually refer to hope as sort of a, an emotional state in which we have sort of the desires of our heart that we hope will happen in the future, but we're not sure will come to pass. You know, I mean, you might say, you know, I uh, kids, you might say, you know, I hope my parents don't make me take a nap this afternoon, you know, so that I can go play. Now, are you sure that's going to happen? Yeah, maybe, maybe not, you know, but you're, you're, you're hoping that will happen. But that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. You know, it's not referring to a desire that you hope will happen or that seems uncertain, but rather a desire for the future that is absolutely certain. So when the Bible says, I hope in something, it's like I am confident that that's going to happen. So in the case with you kids, you'd say, I hope my parents won't make me take a nap. There is some reason that makes you think that is definitely going to happen. You won't have to take a nap this afternoon. But, you know, but it's not just a sense of positive thinking. You know, there is something that our faith is based upon, and it's based on our trust in the promises of God, that we can be fully confident about the outcome because of what God has said. When God gives his people a promise for the future and the church grasps it, it's really said to be an anchor of the soul, as Hebrews 6, 19 says. And we know that an anchor is something that sort of takes a ship and protects it from being tossed everywhere. You know, it sort of holds it solid. And in the same way, that's what our faith in God does. And so when the Bible says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, as we see in verse one, it's speaking of something that has weight. It's something that has significance. It's something of extreme value. So in a real sense, hope is looking forward to the future. 
the word faith carries a strong element of trust. If my hope is based on something God has said will happen in the future, the hope I have for that future promise finds its assurance from my trust and my confidence in the one who's making that promise. It's based on something substantial. So it's not just sort of a wishful thinking, I hope this happens. It is something where it's like, I know this is gonna happen because I have confidence in, and in this case, it is confidence in our God. But then he goes on and he says, not only is faith the assurance of things hoped for, but it is the conviction of things not seen. Now, it's interesting that he uses this, the, the sense of sight, because today we have sort of a, a, a different expression that we oftentimes use, don't we? Seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. And as we, as we listen to what he says in Hebrews, Hebrews says it's the conviction of things not seen, and yet, you know, we have a tendency to want to use this idea that seeing is believing. And we might think that these two things are sort of diametrically opposed, that this attitude is not, but it's not opposed to biblical faith, this idea of seeing is believing. Because in the New Testament, you know, as we put our trust in the gospel, it's not just sort of a leap of faith. Oftentimes, you know, that's the criticism of Christians that they're just taking a leap into the darkness. But really, the things that we believe are based upon the testimony of eyewitnesses who have reported these things. I mean, think about what, what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, as he's talking to these uh, Christians. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there. We saw this. And so the things that we are saying to you really happened. And we can attest to that. Luke um, says the same thing. He's, he's writing to uh, Theophilus. And, and he says, as he, as he writes to Theophilus, he said, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So there's a sense in which Luke says, I went back and I researched this and I talked to people who had been there and I took these eyewitnesses account and I sit down and I and I wrote to this. So he's saying everything that I'm writing to you is substantiated by eyewitnesses accounts. So there's a link in the New Testament between faith and seeing. And yet the author of Hebrews describes faith as the conviction of things not seen. And I think that's probably why even some Christians sort of argue that there's sort of a, a virtue to sort of a biblical idea of blind faith. You know, it's just like, oh, I'm just going to trust that the Lord's going to take care of that. And there's really no basis on which they are, are placing their faith. But, you know, I think that we need to remember that faith really is made up of three things. OK, and kids, the way I remember this is the word cat, only not C-A-T, K-A-T. Okay, so if you're not a great speller, you'll appreciate this. K-A-T, okay? First of all, it's based on knowledge. 
You know, there's a there's a knowledge there. There's a knowledge that God has given his promises and we can trust those things. So there's a knowledge. But then there's also that assent. There's that belief that what that 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 knowledge is true. So you have knowledge, you have assent and then you have trust. It's not only do you believe it's true, but you are resting all your hope in that. So it would be like if I took this chair, kids, and I brought it up here, and I said, do you think this chair is going to hold me? Do you think it will hold me? If I took a chair and I brought it up here, do you think this is going to hold me if I sat down on it? You think so? Yeah, I think so too. But am I putting my faith in that chair? No. How, how, how will you know if I put my faith in that chair? I got to sit down in it, don't I? And when I sit down on it, I put all my weight. Now I'm putting my faith. I'm putting my trust in, in that chair. And that's the way it is with God. The Bible never claims that we should just jump into darkness. As a matter of fact, the biblical injunction is for people to come out of darkness and into the light. So it is something that we need to put our faith in him. But what does this mean? Hebrews still says that faith is the assurance of things not seen. When, when faith is linked to hope, it's put in the time frame of the future, right? You know, that, that I, I have a hope in something that's going to happen in the future. The problem is, as we prayed in the prayer of Thanksgiving, we can't see the future. Can anybody tell me what's going to happen 10 minutes from now? Or can anybody tell me what's going to happen with the next election in the United States? Yeah, we don't know those things. Not at all. But our God does. And that's why Hebrews says that faith is a conviction of, of things not seen. You know, while we can't see tomorrow, we know that our God is a God that is above time and space. That God is not only here in the present, God is in the past and God is in the future as well. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And so God knows exactly what the future is going to hold. And because I know God and because he has said something and because of his track record that he has never lied to his people, he is infallible and he never lies, that we can trust him. And that's not a sense of irrationality. On the contrary, it's irrational not to believe what God says because he is the only one who has been in the future. So even those that want to sort of poo-poo Christian faith uh, sort of show their ignorance because they don't know either because they've never been in the future. So he not, but, but God not only reveals to us events of tomorrow or, or in the future, but he also reveals to us much about the supernatural realm, which our eyes cannot see. Uh, we can't see angels. We can't see heaven. We can't see those things. I remember one time in seminary, I made the comment to our professor. I said something about, yeah, you know, um, we were talking about spiritual things. And I said, yeah, but in terms of reality, and he stopped me. And he said, excuse me, what did you say? And I said, well, in terms of reality, and he goes, are you insinuating that the spiritual world is not part of reality? And as I sort of cowered down in my chair when I realized what I had said, you know, but sometimes we can think that way, that the things that we see, but God just sort of takes back that curtain and he shows us 
that there's more to reality than what we experience with our senses. And that, you know, he shows us what those things are. And then he calls us to believe in him. And a great example of the kind of faith that God calls us to have is Abraham. You don't need to turn back there, but if we had read on from Luke 3 into Luke 4, uh, actually Paul makes reference to Abraham and the faith that he had. And he calls him the father of the faithful. And and, uh, God spoke to Abraham about the future back in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. I'll read those verses. I'm, I'm sure you've heard those before and familiar with them. But God said to Abram, he said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so you know what Abraham did? He believed God. He set out. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know where he was journeying. He just knew where the Lord told him to go. And he went there. But the New Testament gives us a little bit of insight into what Abram was thinking. Uh, in Hebrews eleven ten. it says that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. Abraham was looking for that place that the Lord had told him to go. And he trusted God for what he had not seen. And it wasn't a blind faith because he wasn't putting his faith in the circumstances of the future. He was putting his faith in God himself. And like Abraham, we are pilgrims and sojourners in this world searching for that heavenly country, the city whose designer and builder is our God. And we've not seen this city, uh, but we know it exists. And, and so we trust and we look to him. So at the root of faith, and I want you to hear this. I, I want everybody to hear this. At the root of f- faith, it's not believing in God. It is believing God. It is not believing in God, faith is believing God. You see, if we believe in God, it could be sort of a, a, a very distant, impersonal thing. You know, I can believe that Jesus Christ came to earth 2,000 years ago. I could believe even that he died upon the cross. I can believe in that. But that doesn't necessarily affect my life. It's not necessarily faith. I have the knowledge and I have the assent, right? I believe that that's true, but I don't have the trust. Kids, I haven't sat down in the chair. You know, but believing God implies a personal relationship. I know God and I trust God and I put my full weight upon him. And that's what God calls us to do as well, is that we would believe him. So the Christian life is about believing God. It's about believing every word that proceeds out of his mouth, as, as we read in Matthew 4, 4. It's about following him into places that we've never been, into situations that we've never experienced, into countries that we've never seen, because we know who God is. 
And that's the kind of faith that the Bible calls a, a childlike faith, not a childish faith, but a childlike faith. And if you remember, you probably don't remember, when you were real little, like an infant, like a baby, like Olivia, something like that, right? She just totally trusts in her parents. She doesn't know about the things that will harm her or hurt her. You know, she just completely trusts them for everything, to change her diapers, to give her food, to give her protection and shelter. And then as you get older, what do you do, kids? Your parents are going to walk, uh, take you somewhere, and you're going to walk across the street, and you see all the cars coming. And, you know, you don't really know how you're supposed to get across that street when you first do it, right? But you, you have your parents' hand, and they take you by the hand, and they walk up to the curb, and they stop. So what do you do? You stop. And they look both ways. And so you sort of look both ways and they say, OK, let's go. And do you stop and go, well, let me pontificate that for a moment. Do I really want to go or do I not? No, you just go. You go with your parents because you trust them. And that's the kind of faith that God calls us in. It's not a blind faith. The faith that the child has is because they trust their parent. And in the same way, God calls us to trust in him. So childlike faith has a confidence in the character of God because he, he, we are his children. So the pilgrim of the Christian life is a pilgrimage of faith. It begins when God creates faith in our hearts. It, it, in that first stage of our Christian experience, we embrace Christ and trust him for our redemption. But really, the whole of the Christian life is one of faith. I love what Colossians 2, 6 says. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You received him by faith, walk in him by faith. Habakkuk says, the righteous shall live by faith. So the way God's wonderful salvation through Christ alone becomes ours is as we Receive it by faith as we recognize that we are that sinner and we realize that we really have no hope to get to heaven. There's no reason God should let us there. If we died and we stood before God and God says, why should I let you in? We have to say, I don't know. I don't think you should, honestly. You know, but faith says, I believe that God, when he says that he's actually provided a way for us. And that is if we trust in his son the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, we live that way. But it's not just something that we do at some point in time when we pray a prayer and we have faith in God. That faith continues throughout our lives. And so every day is a day of trusting in him. And, and there's that evidence in our hearts that we have faith because of the way that we live our lives. It's not that life that saves us, but it's that life that shows that we have that faith. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Now, I think it's interesting as we think about the Reformation and the Catholic Church, the pre-Reformation Church, and, and even the Roman Catholic Church today, I think oftentimes people say that, that Rome or the Reformation Church believed in justification by works, but the Reformers believed in justification by faith. But I think to say that is to misunderstand the debate, and it really misrepresents both sides. In fact, the doctrine of justification by faith was taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Did you know that? It was taught by the church that you are justified by faith. But what's the word that's missing there? Alone. 
alone. They say that you are justified by faith, but the reformers said, no, it's by faith alone. And this is what it looks like. And I think it's worth us noting too as well. For the church then, as the Roman church today, justification was thought to be sort of a lifelong process that began when a person was baptized. And that when that person, that child was baptized, that God's uh, righteousness was infused, infused into that baby. So the, kids, what that means is that, that that baby actually became good. OK, all that goodness was in that baby. OK, but that baby needed to, to grow up and, and to receive more grace through the sacraments. And so he's equipped to produce more good works. And this way, as he does more good works, as he receives those sacraments, then more and more of uh, God's righteousness is given to him. He's more and more justified. So can you see? They say you just need to have faith. But actually, also, you have to have works as well. So you got to understand what they mean when they say justified by faith. And it's important uh, that they continue to receive the sacraments because for them, justification is a losable grace. You have to maintain that. You have to keep that, that up. And it's through the sacraments that, uh, that each person is justified or, or made uh, legally standing before God as being right with God. So faith is required through that process. And since most Christians are not perfectly righteous when they die, then that's why the Roman Catholic Church says they must spend time in purgatory so that they can become more righteous until the day when they receive that final justification. And in this way, they can be justified by faith. You see what I'm saying? But you know what? Do we not sometimes fall into that trap? I know, I think, you know, I was a covenant kid. I grew up in the church. And, you know, it wasn't until probably I was older that I understood that when Jesus Christ died for me, he didn't like make me good. And that God looked at Rick and said, wow, Rick is so good. I love him. I think I'm going to let him go to heaven. But you know what? That also meant that, that some days Rick wasn't good. You know, I was a bad kid. And then on those days I thought, oh, God doesn't love me because I don't have enough goodness in me. And so I felt very alienated. I felt like, you know, I didn't have a close relationship with God. But, you know, it wasn't until I was older that I understood that justification is not a process. It's an act, as we talked about when we read the confession, it's something that happens at the beginning of our Christian life. And no matter whether we're good on this day or we're bad on this day, if, Je if Jesus has died for us and he's taken his perfect life and he's credited that to our account, it's always a part of our account. We can't erase it. We can't get rid of it. It is there because he's given it to us. So when we get to heaven... You know, and God looks at us. He's not going to say, wow, Rick was good or Joshua was good or Sarah was good or Robbie was good. Instead, what he's going to do is he's going to look at us and he's going to see the robe of righteousness. Kids, imagine that this robe that I'm wearing here 
was a robe of righteousness. God's going to look at that robe of righteousness and he's going to say, that's why I'm going to let you into heaven. It's because of what his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, did. And because we trusted that and, uh, and looked to him. And that's what the reformers saw, that it was by faith alone. It wasn't by our works. And what's interesting is even the faith that we have is not of us. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. You know, we could we could sort of boast, we could sort of be proud because we could say, hey, I have faith in God. Like that's something that's really uh, awesome that we would do that. But look at what Ephesians 2, 8 says. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, so what is the gift that he's given to us? Well, I would suggest to you today that it is the gift of faith. So even the faith that we have is the gift of God to believe and to trust in him. Now, some might say, well, I don't know about that. I think maybe the gift was the grace or something. And you might, I could understand why people might think that. But if you look back at Ephesians chapter two and go back to verse one, it said, and you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then skip down to verse four. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Okay, it wasn't, didn't say that we had faith and therefore he made us alive. We were actually dead. Now, what did dead people do? Nothing. They're just dead. They just lay there. You can poke them. Nothing. You can talk to them. Nothing. They're just dead. But we see here that what Christ did is when we were dead, when we were enemies of God, when we did not trust him, he breathed new life in us. And he gave us the faith to believe in him and to believe him that what he says is true and that the gospel is true and to walk with him. And because of that, then we would have new life in Christ. You know, the most important question, that, questions that we will ever have to consider is, how are you made right with God? And we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week as we talk about God's grace and how we're justified. But then the other question is, am I justified? Have I sat down in the chair? Do I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Not trusting in a prayer that I prayed, not trusting in the good works that I've done. But, you know, even when I don't feel like a child of God, I know that I'm a child of God because my confidence and my hope and my faith and my trust is not in the circumstances, but it is in the God who gave the promise and who gave the good news, the gospel good news. Amen? And so we can come to him confident. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, so much for your word that you have given to us at this time. We pray, Lord, just as we take a moment now to 
to meditate on your word. Lord, that you would, you would speak to us, that you would deal with the issues of our hearts. Our Lord and our God, we, we praise and thank you for the word that we heard this morning. And we pray that we would not forget these things. Lord, you know that, um, you know the, the times that we can doubt our faith, that we can think that, that we're good enough, that we've lived up to your standards. We, we praise and thank you, Lord, though, that the righteousness that comes from Christ comes by faith and that we can trust you. Lord, that you are, you are our anchor. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to consider these things and, and the way that we live our lives and that we would be uh, renewed by your Holy Spirit to walk by faith. Lord, I, I do pray for any that might be here today that do not know you, that do not have this faith or trust. Lord, maybe their confidence is in the fact that they have faith. And so they have faith in faith instead of faith in Christ. But Lord, let our hope be fixed upon you and upon you alone. We pray in your name. Amen.